morning. Good morning. It is a uh, joy to be with you as we're finally getting some fall-ish weather. My wife had an absolute field day over the weekend, saying it doesn't matter that fall is actually 10 days away. If it feels like fall, it's fall. And so the pumpkins are out at our house. Everything's orange. <laughs> Scarecrows. It's, uh, it's like a pumpkin patch over at the Reuben home. <laughs> Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9 as we continue in our series through Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 9 is where we will be this morning. We'll be looking at verses 9 through 13 today. 9 through 13. Matthew 9, 9 through 13. I don't know about you, but one of my favorite things in the world is hearing stories about how God calls, from our perspective, most unexpected people to follow Jesus. Whether it's the story of C.S. Lewis, who went from being a, a hardened atheist to one of the most prolific Christian writers of the past century, or whether it's St. Augustine, who went from being entrenched in uh, immoral pagan philosophy to being one of the great church fathers, or the story of the Apostle Paul, who went from being a fierce persecutor of the church to a devoted disciple of Jesus Christ, these stories are exciting and they're wonderful because they display to us how God's sovereign grace can reach those who we, with our very short-sighted view, often suspect are, are just a little too far out of reach. And in this morning's text, we find ourselves in the midst of such a story, a story that reveals the ultimate purpose of Jesus' mission and ministry as the Messiah, a story that reveals to us the kind of people that Jesus comes to bring into the kingdom of heaven. In this morning's text, we will see that Jesus comes to call sinners. Let's start reading in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. Well, let's ask for God's help as we come to his word. Our Lord and our God, the flower fades and the grass withers, but your word remains forever. And we thank you for this account of Jesus Christ in Matthew's gospel this morning. An account that is truly one of good news for us, if we have the eyes to see it. So Lord, would you open our eyes to the truth of your word today? Holy Spirit, come give us understanding of the scriptures. Would you teach us what you know each one of us needs from this text today? Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, that he has come to call sinners. Father, if there are those who do not know Christ today, I pray they would hear his voice, that they would hear his call. Lord, would you speak through me as I seek to proclaim Christ and his excellence? Would you help me to only say what is in alignment with your word, that Jesus would be glorified to the praise of your name? We ask this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, last week, as we looked at the previous portion of Matthew chapter 9, we saw uh, that Jesus, while at his house in Capernaum, 
first forgave a paralyzed man of his sin and then healed his body to prove that he did have the authority to forgive sins on earth. Uh, a text that showed to us the deity of Christ and the compassion of Christ in forgiving sinners. And as we jump into verse 9 of our text this morning, we see Matthew tells us Jesus passes on from there. In other words, Jesus leaves his home and heads out. Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus actually goes down from his house to the Sea of Galilee. And he's walking along the shoreline, surrounded by a crowd. Matthew omits these details, but Mark fills in some of them for us. And as Jesus and this crowd is walking along, Jesus is teaching them as he, as he does. And as Jesus walks along the shore, teaching the crowd, his eyes alight upon one man. A man sitting in a tax booth, a man named Matthew. Now, if that name Matthew sounds familiar, it should. We are in Matthew's gospel. It's Matthew who is the author of this portion of scripture that we have been spending so much time in. Mark and Luke use his Hebrew name, Levi, but his Aramaic name was Matthew. That's how Matthew refers to himself here. And Matthew, of course, was a tax collector a detail that's going to become extremely important as we go through this text. Tax collectors were basically subcontractors who worked for the Roman, the Roman Empire, for the government, and they would collect taxes for either the empire at large or the local government, uh, maybe King Herod's province, for example. And they would basically tax goods that were moved from place to place. And Matthew was probably sitting in his tax booth on the shore of Galilee to tax the merchants, the ships that were coming in from across the Sea of Galilee. Now, unfortunately, because of the lack of oversight and the nature of the job, tax collecting was a profession that was absolutely rife with corruption, greed, extortion. Tax collectors had the right to search a person's belongings, and they often demanded more than what was actually owed to pad their pockets, or they would add fees on to what had already been paid. They were not really interested in being fair and honest, but they were more interested in becoming rich. I've never met somebody who likes the IRS, um, and if you can imagine it, people disliked tax collectors even more in Jesus's day. And if you add on top of that the fact that Rome liked to hire local boys for this work, which meant that in Jewish areas you had Jewish tax collectors, to the rest of their countrymen, to work for the Roman oppressors and to deal with Gentiles on a regular basis, that was viewed not only with disdain, but really as treasonous against God. To the Jews, Matthew, the tax collector, would have been the ultimate traitor, a wicked and despicable human being. He would have been cast out from mainstream Jewish society. His fellow Jews would have not accepted him or had anything to do with him at all. He would have been the scum of the earth to them. And here's Jesus walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, followed by this crowd from Capernaum, this Jewish crowd. And he sees Matthew, the vile tax collector, this greedy and dishonest traitor. And out of everyone who's there, Jesus calls to Matthew, follow me. To Matthew of all people. This same call of discipleship that Jesus gave to John, James, Andrew, Peter, and the Sea of Galilee in chapter 4. The same call of discipleship Jesus gave to the man who wanted to go bury his father in Matthew 8, Jesus gives to Matthew, the tax collector, here, follow me. Why on earth would Jesus choose this man? 
What does Matthew, the tax collector, possibly have to offer Jesus? What resources does he bring to the team? He doesn't really seem to have a great resume for the kingdom of God, right? Not first on the hiring list. I think about it. Jesus is surrounded by a crowd of fans. These people are following Jesus because they're fascinated by him. They want to hear what he has to say. And, and Jesus goes and calls the one person there who probably doesn't care much about what he's saying at all. The one person there who's clearly most interested not in Jesus, but in collecting some extra cash. The one person there who was very clearly, in everybody's eyes, a bad person. Can you imagine what the crowd was thinking when they see Jesus go to Matthew and say, follow me, I want you to be my disciple? Are you serious, that guy? And what I love about this is that, that, remember, Matthew's writing this section of Scripture. Matthew's recounting his own story here a little bit. And he's honest about his past. He's honest about who he used to be, but he's not making that the priority of the text. Right? Matthew doesn't spend hours and hours and hours talking about all the bad things he did as a tax collector. Right? He just states the facts. He's a tax collector. And in writing this here, Matthew's putting the emphasis not on himself, but on Jesus. Now think about that. How does that compare to the way that we often share our testimonies, right? When you share how you became a disciple, do you talk more about yourselves and all of the good choices or decisions that you made along the way or all of the bad decisions you made along the way? Does that eclipse the sovereign, gracious salvation that Jesus brought to you as he called you out of darkness to light? There's something sweet about the simplicity of Matthew's testimony here. But there's something else we have to realize when we read this account. In calling Matthew to follow him, Jesus is uh, calling Matthew to leave the tax booth and the way of life associated with it behind. Right? When Jesus called uh, the fishermen, right, the four fishermen, James, John, Peter, and Andrew, yeah, they left their boats behind and they went to do other work. But we see them going back to fish a couple times, right? It wasn't sinful to fish. But in Matthew's case, it's a different story. Jesus is calling Matthew to repent. Follow me and leave this behind. Right? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That was Jesus' message. Jesus is calling Matthew here to forsake this corrupt profession and its earthly gain and to become a disciple, to learn from Jesus himself, and in fact, to belong to the kingdom of heaven over the kingdom of Rome. When we think about who Jesus has called so far, it's a pretty ragtag group, isn't it? He, he's not going to choose the best Torah scholars. He's not going to choose the best Bible students. He doesn't choose the greatest philanthropists or the greatest philosophers of his day to be his disciples. He chooses a group that's very rough around the edges, right? You got four fishermen, a, 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 a zealot, Right, an anti-Roman terrorist. And now here we have a tax collector, among other things. Jesus chooses disciples in such a way that it's very clear uh, they're not bringing anything to the table. Jesus gets all the glory for what he will do through them. And what is Matthew's response to this call to discipleship? Matthew tells us, he rose and followed him. Now think about this, right? Jesus isn't promising Matthew, anything. He doesn't say, I got a $5,000 sign-on bonus, Matthew. Think about it. He doesn't do that. He just says, follow me. And Matthew doesn't take a lot of time to think about it. He doesn't say, you know what? 
let me go take a look at some things. Let me think about my life trajectory. Let me think about how much more money I could make versus following Jesus. No. Again, we see the authority of Jesus on display. Matthew gets up from the booth and goes. He follows Jesus. I love what Luke adds here in Luke 5.28 of the same account. It says, leaving everything, Matthew rose and followed Jesus. Leaving everything. That's incredible, isn't it? What could make Matthew, of all people, suddenly become interested in Jesus and more so to follow him as a disciple, leaving this other life and all of its earthly benefits behind? Nothing but the authority of Jesus and the sovereign grace of God in changing Matthew's heart and opening Matthew's eyes. And friends, as obviously bad as Matthew was, the same question applies to you and to me, right? Matthew wasn't born with a more sinful heart than any of us in this room. We're all born with the same level of sinful depravity. Why should any of us hear the gospel, believe it, and, and forsake our sin for Christ? It's not because we have more common spiritual sense than the next guy. It's not because we're maybe a little bit more morally good and, and open to the gospel just in our, our temperament. No. The only explanation is the authority of Jesus in calling his people and the sovereign grace of God in giving us a new heart that would respond in such a way, that would actually follow the very one we'd spent our lives rebelling against. And really, Matthew's response to Jesus here is a picture of conversion, and again, more specifically, of that initial moment of repentance as we turn from the world from sin to Christ. Our repentance does require us to renounce sin, to renounce the life that we may have lived before, to leave them behind. And that repentance continues through our sanctification. Right as Paul, the great persecutor of the church, writes in Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because everything, mind you, which is what Matthew left behind, everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now think about that for a minute. Matthew left everything behind and gained so much more in Christ. And there'd be no going back to that tax booth for Matthew. Jesus has called him, and the call of Jesus is final. No, the next place that Matthew and Jesus would go, of all places, is the dinner table. The dinner table. Look at verse 10. We see all of a sudden that Jesus is reclining at table in a house. Matthew cuts to a scene of a dinner table. And again, Matthew, I think out of humility, leaves out some details that Mark and Luke include. This is not just any house. This is Matthew's house. This is Matthew's own house where this dinner is happening. You see, Matthew, after being called to follow Jesus, invites Christ to his house to throw a banquet, a feast, a party. But what a fitting thing to do after being called to follow the King of Heaven, to celebrate. Matthew tells us that Jesus is reclining at the table. He's leaning back, relaxing. This was a posture, culturally, in first century Palestine, that was found in the context of free celebration. Free celebration. And this tells us that uh, Matthew probably had a pretty large house. He probably was a pretty rich guy. If there's enough room to have a table and a bunch of people reclining around that table, he's got a big house. 
he's done well for himself. But now he's invited Jesus in to his home. And Jesus is not alone here. It's not, it's not just a, a one-on-one dinner. We see in verse 10 that it's Jesus and his disciples. But there's also many tax collectors and sinners. Many tax collectors and sinners, Matthew says. Now think for a moment what we know about tax collectors. Think about how Matthew would have been shunned in Jewish society. Who are the only people that would not shun a tax collector? Other tax collectors, right? Uh, you know, and that, that, that crowd. Matthew hung out with sinners and tax collectors. Those were the only people that would accept him. And so what we see here is, is Matthew's invited all of his friends to the meal. Matthew's invited all of his friends to dinner. One commentator notes that the purpose of this meal is to introduce Jesus to his friends and explain his change of occupation. Matthew is excited about becoming a disciple of Jesus. He wants to throw a feast to share this news with his friends. He wants to bring them to meet Jesus. This is an evangelistic dinner. Do you remember when you first came to know the Lord Jesus, when you first came to follow him? Do you remember the excitement, the newness, how you just couldn't stop telling people about Jesus? You didn't care if you, you know, they thought you were crazy. You just would tell anybody, your family, your friends, your neighbors, random people on the street, right? Matthew's got that fresh excitement of being a new convert, an excitement that uh, if only it carried on more through our lives, it, it certainly should. But that's where Matthew's at. He's excited about following Jesus. And he's invited his friends to hear about it. And I love what uh, Charles Spurgeon says about this because it's so helpful for considering our own approach to evangelism. Uh, speaking to Matthew's friends, he says, they would come to a supper more readily than to a sermon. So he gave them a feast and thus attracted them to the place where Jesus was. We must use all lawful means to bring others under the sound word of God. Think about that for a minute. Matthew wanted his friends to meet Jesus, but they weren't going in the synagogue, right? They wouldn't want to go in there. So what does Matthew do? He throws a feast. He brings his friends to the place where their human weaknesses and reservations and, and pride and insecurity and barriers, right, are not automatically going to go up. He brings them to a place where they may be more comfortable meeting Jesus. Now, is the comfort of unbelievers the primary goal of evangelism? No, of course not. But should we consider it if we're trying to reach somebody for Christ? Absolutely, we should. Rosaria Butterfield, a well-known author in the Christian world, was brought to Christ through this kind of dinner table evangelism. It's an amazing story. She was a lesbian, atheist, English professor living in New England who was militantly against Christianity. Militantly. And would never set foot in a church. There was no way. But as she recounts her story, it was the hospitality of a local Presbyterian pastor and his wife, literally over dinner table conversations that she came to salvation in Jesus. Over the dinner table. Something that most, if not all of us, have. Brothers and sisters, we need to ask a convicting question. Are we willing to bring sinners into our home that they might hear of Christ if they won't come to church? Right? They may decline an invitation to church, but what about to dinner? That can be a, a well worth an evangelism opportunity. And so around this table we find Jesus the Messiah and, and probably the worst sinners in Capernaum. Right? You think about the people in Star Wars or the aliens in Star Wars and Moss Eisley, right? A hive of scum and villainy. Those are the kinds of people Jesus is eating with here. <laughs> it's for you, Joey. It's for you. Now we've talked about who tax collectors are. 
right? But, but this other category Matthew gives us, sinners, what's that describing? That's describing morally corrupt people. Think prostitutes, drunkards, thieves, right? Gamblers, whatever it may be. People for whom sin is a way of life. People who are experts in sin. And Jesus is sharing the table with them. You have to remember something, right? In this culture and in this time, to share a meal with somebody was to have the closest kind of fellowship. To eat dinner with somebody was implicitly saying uh, that I'm part of this group. It was prohibited by the Pharisees, for example, to share a meal with somebody who was considered unclean. They didn't even want to be associated with such people. And of course, Jesus does not ever condone sin. But he is not uncomfortable or awkward being found in the midst of sinful people, of irreligious people, sharing a meal with them. But word reaches the Pharisees. Perhaps someone in the crowd ran and told them when Jesus called Matthew. But somehow the Pharisees find out Jesus is eating here, and they are not happy about it. The Pharisees are not fully opposed to Christ yet at this point in Matthew's gospel. But this may be a tipping point for them. The Pharisees end up going to Matthew's house, but they would never set foot inside. Right? This is a tax collector's house. They're not going in there. They hear about it. They go to Matthew's house. I almost suspect they're outside the house, peeking in through the windows, trying to look at what's going on in there, scowling disapprovingly at what they see. And Matthew tells us that the Pharisees take their objection about what's going on, not to Jesus, but look in verse 11, to his disciples, to his disciples. I can't help but wonder if they were a little embarrassed from that scene with the paralytic and, and uh, were a little, a little hesitant to go confront Jesus directly. Now Luke tells us that the Pharisees are grumbling to the disciples here. They say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does your teacher do that? The Greek for eat here is in the present tense describing an ongoing action. In other words, why is your teacher currently eating with tax collectors and sinners? They're bringing this problem to the disciples in the middle of the meal. They can't even wait till the meal's over, right? They cannot believe that Jesus is doing this. In their mind, to eat with people like this wasn't just inappropriate, but it would make one unclean. Jesus should not be doing this in the mind of the Pharisees. This is not what a proper rabbi should be about. Again, the Pharisees wouldn't even go in the house of a Gentile. They wouldn't even go in the house of a tax collector. And for Jesus not only to be in the house there, but to be eating with these kinds of people, that's scandalous. That's disgraceful. That's unholy. The Pharisees would surround themselves with pure, upright, good religious Jews so that they would remain clean and that they would be uh, surrounded by good influences. And just think of how being seen with such people might damage one's reputation. A shame but not Jesus. Jesus doesn't have the same concern that the Pharisees do. Jesus is not concerned with the external state of the sinners and tax collectors. He's not concerned about becoming ritually unclean or corrupted. But you can bet the Pharisees' opinion of Jesus is decreasing pretty quickly. But make no mistake, right? Jesus is not careless about what he's doing either. He's very intentional. He's very purposeful. He's not sharing this meal with these people for no reason. Jesus does nothing without a purpose. And word of the Pharisees' objection makes its way to Christ. It reaches Jesus. 
And as always, Jesus has an answer. And it's a doozy. It's a doozy. He gives a three-part rebuke to the subjection of the Pharisees. First in verse 12, Jesus, after hearing this, says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. This was actually a common proverb in the ancient world. It's a common phrase. It's found in several extra-biblical sources prior to Jesus. It would have been a, a phrase that was familiar to the Pharisees. And this well-known proverb perfectly illustrates an important aspect of Jesus' mission. Let's think about what Jesus is saying here. When somebody is in good health, when they're physically well, they generally don't go to the doctor, right? Especially if you got a big copay. But more importantly... <laughs> You don't see your need for a doctor. If everything seems to be running just fine, you're feeling good, no problems, you don't go see a doctor. Why would you? Right? Why would you spend the time or money for something you don't think you need? But for somebody who is sick, on the other hand, they are keenly aware of their need for a doctor, and they may want to get to one as quickly as possible. An unhealthy person, a sick person who's feeling symptoms of their illness, they see their need for help. Because they want the doctor's help to get better, right? They hope the doctor can provide a cure for their problem. And of course, Jesus can heal the body. We've seen that all throughout Matthew chapter 8 and 9. But Jesus is talking here about spiritual health and sickness. Why would he spend his time around tax collectors and sinners? Because they are very clearly spiritually sick, right? They are not spiritually healthy. They are leading lives consumed by sin. But Jesus' point to the Pharisees is that these people, being obviously in a bad spiritual way, are far more likely to see their need for a spiritual healer or a great physician than those who think they are healthy and right before God. The Pharisees think they are spiritually healthy. Right? They think they're in a good place. They think they have no need of a physician because they, leave, they, they live clean, morally regulated lives. And while nobody is born spiritually healthy, on a human level, it's easier to point to um, visible signs of destruction and decay in a you know, corrupt sinner's life than it is in a self-righteous, righteous person's life. If you're working hard to keep the outside together with a fake exterior of morality, it's going to be harder to find the flaws than somebody who is openly sinful and doesn't really care what you think. That's why evangelism in culturally Christian areas can be more difficult in some cases than in uh, regions that are more atheistic. But Jesus is the spiritual physician. He's come to restore the souls of his people and deal with their sin. And to do this, he spends time among them. As John Chrysostom, uh, an early church father, remarks, if Jesus did not put up with the decay of the persons who are sick, he would not set them free from their sickness. And a good doctor must see their patient, examine them, give them a cure, interact with them. And so Jesus, the great physician, interacts with tax collectors and sinners, with the spiritually sick. Second, Jesus tells the Pharisees to go back to Torah school. He says, go back and learn what this means in verse 13. This is actually an expression the rabbis would use to study the Torah. He's telling them, you need to go back and read your Bibles because you've missed some very important but basic things. And Jesus tells them to go back specifically to Hosea 6.6, 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Let's turn back to Hosea 6 for a moment, just so we can see this reference in context. 
Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. Hosea 6, 6. The book of Hosea is a, uh, an amazing book. It's the story of God's steadfast love to the unfaithful nations of Judah and Israel who, who basically commit spiritual adultery uh, by giving themselves over to idolatry. And in the first three verses of Hosea 6, uh, the prophet Hosea exhorts Israel and Judah to return to the Lord, to repent, to turn back to knowing God, that there can be a hope of blessing, of, of, of uh, restoration. But as we see in verse 4, the love of Judah and Israel is, is fleeting. It's like a morning cloud, like dew that goes away early. They are unfaithful to the Lord. They are unfaithful to the Lord. As the Lord says in verse 5, He's hewn them by the prophets. He's slain them by the words of His mouth. He's pronounced judgment on them. Why? We see verse 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offering. Remember at Sinai, God gave the nation of Israel ceremonial laws, right? sacrifices that would make Israel ritually pure before God. And that's what's being referred to here by sacrifice, by burnt offering. But as Judah and Israel and, and Hosea are confronted with their idolatry, God is very clear about what matters to him most. What is the mark of being in a true relationship with God? Steadfast love, Hosea says, and the knowledge of God. Now, steadfast love is the Hebrew version of mercy that Jesus mentions. Same word, basically. And while Jesus doesn't quote the second half of verse 6, it makes the same point. And here's the point that the verse is getting at. Here's what Jesus is driving at with the Pharisees. God absolutely does care how we worship him. But external acts of, of religion do not compensate for a heart that is far from God. External religious activity does not substitute for a heart that is right before God. Following regulations of the ceremonial law while neglecting love and, and neglecting knowing God and loving Him is actually displeasing to God, right? Outward acts of, of ritual or religion without a righteous and godly character. That's hypocrisy, and that is offensive to God. And this is all over the Old Testament, which is why Jesus, almost he's almost being sarcastic here. He's almost saying, how did you guys miss this? It's so basic. Samuel says to Saul when Saul offers an unauthorized sacrifice, has the Lord his great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams, 1 Samuel 15.22, or... Or take David after his sin against Bathsheba and, uh, and her husband, Uriah. He writes, You will not delight in sacrifice where I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. David could have offered all the sacrifices in the world. He's king. But that's not what God wanted from him. It's not what God wants from us. Or the prophet Micah, who emphasizes to Judah and Israel what's of first importance to God. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with 
your God. Here's Jesus' point to the Pharisees in this situation in Matthew chapter 9. They're more concerned about keeping external religious laws, many of which God never commanded anyway, and rules of ritual purity than they are about showing mercy and compassion to sinners and in recognizing their own sinfulness. They are more concerned about rules than they are about character. And make no mistake, God is, or Jesus is not saying God's law doesn't matter. It absolutely does. But what Jesus is pointing out is that the outside parts, but the behavior of righteousness without the kind of character and heart that God desires is meaningless. It is meaningless. And according to Jesus, this is a basic Old Testament principle. Why is he hanging out with these people? Why? Because that's more important than a notion of keeping meticulous purity laws. The Pharisees don't get it, though. They don't get it. And God's law never says if you eat dinner with a tax collector, you'll be unclean before God. That was something they added to. They need to go back to Torah kindergarten and see what does God truly desire for them. <laughs> but, but friends, but friends, I know we laugh, but we can end up a lot like the Pharisees sometimes. We can do the same thing, right? You can read your Bible all day long. You can go to church 10 times a week. You can have the best theological knowledge and know all the five-syllable terms. But if your heart is cold, if your heart is cold, and you do not know or show the mercy of God in Christ that you may claim to receive towards others, you're missing the most important thing. God doesn't care if you know what infralapsarianism is if you don't show compassion to someone who needs Christ. All right, God's more pleased with the simple Christian who, despite not knowing what all these complicated things may be or, or having a spotless record of church attendance, loves sinners and shares Christ with them. He's more pleased with that person than he is the best theologian who looks down on sinners with disdain. The Pharisees miss this basic point. Have, have you? Have you? We need to ask ourselves. But Jesus isn't done with the Pharisees here. He has one more thing to say to them, which really encapsulates not just what we see here in this paragraph of Scripture, but really the gospel message itself. Jesus finally tells the Pharisees that the reason he's eating with these people is because he came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Here's the thing about the kingdom of heaven. The message of the kingdom of heaven, by its very nature, is designed for sinners. That's who it's for. What does Matthew tell us Jesus' first and most basic message is in Matthew 4.17? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What do righteous people have to repent for? It's sinners that need to repent, right? The very message of the kingdom of the gospel is that, you know, it's really one that's only truly heard and received by people who understand themselves to be sinners. Otherwise, it means nothing to them. Right? If you say, well, hey, there's a coming judgment on sin, you have sinned, uh, but Jesus can die for that sin to take the punishment that you deserve. He's, he's willing to do that. He's done that on the cross. It's finished by faith in him. You can receive his righteousness and be forgiven. Well, if you say that to a person who doesn't even believe that they're really a sinner to begin with, all that stuff doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what Jesus did if they don't need him. 
There's another reason Jesus didn't come to call the righteous. Probably a more important reason. There are none. There are none. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 3, 10 through 11, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. In the eyes of God, there are not any, not a single truly righteous person who qualifies, again, according to God's standard of righteousness, which is perfect obedience to his law in heart and in behavior. There are only self-righteous people who think that they are righteous based on their own standard, but who in reality ignore what God requires of them. And those people with their own ears do not hear the gospel. They do not hear Jesus calling them in and of themselves. That's a message for others, but not for them. They do not see themselves as sinners. They will not hear their need in the gospel message. And that's what Jesus means. He didn't come to call the righteous, and really what he means there is the self-righteous, those who think they are righteous before God. What about to those who recognize they are sinners? What about to those who are sitting around the table with Jesus? What about to you and me? Well, to them, the gospel is good news. To them, the call of Jesus is not only interesting, but desperately needed. Friend, do you see your deep need for Christ? Do you see your sin? Do you see that God's standard is far deeper than being a pretty good person on most days? Right? It, it, it's being perfect inside and out. If you do not consider yourself a sinner, let me, let me do what I can to plead with you. It is far better to drop the facade of self-righteousness. It only leads to death. Because the sin you do not think you have is the very sin you'll be judged by before Christ. Drop that facade. Confess your sin to Christ and come to Him as Savior. Come to Him. And here's the thing. Jesus is not calling sinners just to learn about him. Okay? Jesus is calling them to repent, to believe, to have eternal life in him. Jesus' call is not just, hey, let's have a meal. It's far more than that. You see, Jesus is not made unclean by sinners. That was the worry of the Pharisees, not the worry of Jesus. But it's really the opposite that is true. Jesus makes sinners clean. Jesus makes sinners clean. He's not made unclean by your sin, by your sinfulness. He doesn't put on latex gloves and deal with you like some six-month-old you know, Tupperware container left in the back of your fridge. Okay, that's not how Jesus treats sinners. Jesus' mission was to come to make sinners spiritually well, to make them spiritually clean, to wash away the guilt of their sin, and to wash their souls, making them new that they may now live a life that is pleasing to God, not perfectly, but progressively. That's why Jesus came, to save sinners. Which category do you put yourself in? Do you consider yourself to be a sinner? Or do you consider yourself to be righteous in yourself? We're not talking about justification. We're talking about being righteous in yourself. Because if you are righteous in yourself, then your hope is in yourself. And you cannot make yourself clean. You cannot make yourself forgiven of sins against God. You cannot make yourself new. You cannot make yourself spiritually alive. You cannot do it. 
Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Well, wait a minute. How does that square with what Jesus just said? Aren't these the kind of people he, he, he came to call? Yes, it is. Paul's not done. He says, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Yes, Jesus meets sinners where they're at, we could say, but he by no means leaves them there. He calls them to repentance. The Holy Spirit regenerates their hearts. They are washed clean. The inside, sanctified, justified. An amazing picture. I love that phrase, such were some of you. Hmm. And that's good news for sinners, isn't it? If you are a sinner, there is good news. There is good news for sinners like you and me that Jesus came to call sinners like you and me so that Jesus could wash, sanctify, justify, make righteous, and forgive sinners like you and me. That's good news, but it requires us to realize the core of the problem. So may we not look upon other sinners like the Pharisees. But knowing our own sin, may we look upon others with the mercy that Christ displays. Not ignoring the sin or saying, well, that's okay. But recognizing that the sin is not the person. And may we, like Matthew, point to Christ and say, I am a sinner, you're a sinner, but I want you to come and meet the sinner who I know. It came to save sinners. May we be like Matthew and bring others to Christ, not because we're better than them, but because we are like beggars showing other beggars where to get bread. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, how merciful you are to us. Lord, you're so patient with us before we become your disciple. You are so patient with us so kind to call us as our good shepherd. Lord, you are so merciful to us still, even after we follow you, after we, after we proclaim you as Lord over our own lives. Yet none of us are perfect, Lord. We, we still sin. And yet your call to sinners is irrevocable. You do not take it back. But rather, Lord, you work in our lives to make us clean. To show us the true depth of our sin that we might depend on you, on the Savior who came to call sinners. We thank you, Lord, that you came for people like us. That by your grace, you've shown us our sin, our need for you. You've given us new hearts that can respond to you in faith and repentance. All of this by grace. Father, if there are any here this morning who do not know Christ, who either consider themselves not to be sinners, or her, who, who, who perhaps, Lord, think that they are too sinful for Christ, open their eyes. Open their eyes to their need for Christ, and that he is sufficient for sins great and small, for sinners great and small. We thank you for your kindness. 
and for the good news of this passage for us today. Lord, help us to rejoice in the call of Christ in our own lives and to give him all glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.